CJSW presents Body Slam Poetry, an eight-part podcast series about Calgary and Alberta's wrestling legacy in the current independent scene. In early October 2022, me and my team, my podcast team for the podcast listening to right now, in fact, met up for the first time to go to RCW or Real Canadian Wrestling show at the Legion Number no. 1 in Calgary. I hadn't just been a fan of professional wrestling since the summer of 1997. I'd also been to a few RCW shows at the Legion and think they're truly the best entertainment you can go to in Calgary. My team members, on the other hand, this was their first experience with wrestling of any kind. One of my team members, Sophie, had a very simple question before we went to the show. Why? Why do pro wrestlers get into it as a line of work? And why do people like myself become big fans? Episode 1. Why? To get into my origin story of why I became a wrestling fan, let's set the table a little bit. Uh, a little bit of table setting, if you will. It is May 1997. The number one song on the Billboard Hot 100 is Hanson's modern pop classic, Mbop. Which, by the way, in case you didn't know, was produced by the Dust Brothers, who produced Beastie Boys' Paul's Boutique and Beck's Odelay. Hanson have more credit than most of your indie faves. Number one at the box office over the May Memorial Day weekend was the Lost World Jurassic Park, which broke records for the highest weekend debut of all time. Men who tamper with the laws of nature do so at their own risk. A Steven Spielberg film, The Lost World, rated PG-13, starts Friday, May 23rd. Followed by the Nick Cage-Jerry Bruckheimer joint, Con Air. Which, by the way, the theme song to Con Air, How Do I Live, still goes. And is an all-time Shoppers Drug Mart banger. Jeez, I'm sorry, I got lost in the song. Anyway, enough pop culture ephemera. I was seven years old at the time, in late May 1997. I was flipping channels one day, as a seven-year-old boy is wont to do. And I see these muscular dudes in spandex tights. I see pyro, loud music, people screaming at each other, insults and threats, and throwing each other around. What was this? This is pro wrestling and the biggest star in early summer 1997 in the wwe then known as wwf but they had to change their name due to a lawsuit by the world wildlife fund in 2002 so they've been wwe ever since was brett the hitman Hart, a veteran wrestler who hailed from my very city of calgary alberta canada i hit the jackpot 
Hart at the time was leading the pro-Canada stable, the Hart Foundation. Made up of family members Owen Hart, Jim the Anvil Neidhart, British Bulldog Davey Boy Smith, and Brian Pillman. Pillman, by the way, was not an actual family member, but had a deep relationship with the Hearts, dating back to his time wrestling for Stampede Wrestling in the 1980s. Brett, for those who are new to Calgary or uninitiated, is arguably the person who put Calgary on the map on a worldwide scale in the 1990s. For people outside of Canada, there's an excellent chance the first time they were ever aware of Calgary was through Brett's worldwide popularity and him being announced before every match as hailing from our dear city. He is also, in my opinion, the greatest wrestler of all time. And not just because his catchphrase was him saying he is the best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be. This is not just a drill into people's heads that you are the best even though you aren't situation. He genuinely is. His sound, technical wrestling work, which includes his pride of never injuring in his 20 plus year career. Okay, go back to the original question. The why of it all. You say there's pride in Brett never injuring someone. When I, when I watch it, it looks like they're seriously hurting each other. How can that be? In Brett's words from a 2021 interview with Q on CBC. It's the one thing I take the most pride in is that I wrestled for 23 years and I never injured one wrestler ever in any way where he couldn't wrestle the next night. And you, you would know from watching my matches that they're very physical matches where you go, oh, that had to hurt. This, you had to hurt about that. It's like, no, it's like, it's really close. It's, you know, you're making full contact with wrestlers, but you're just not hurting them. It's yeah. hard to explain how, how much of a, an art that is, but it's an art. And that is one of the many reasons why he is. The best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be. Okay, let's go further back into the why of it all. Why am I a fan of the sport? To go back to when I got into it, in 1997, Bret Hart and his Hart Foundation group were feuding with American wrestlers like Stone Cold Steve Austin and Shawn Michaels, who reveled in saying how Canada sucked and how America was better. On a kind of a primal monkey brain urge of being a Canadian my whole life, especially at an impressionable age, you definitely got a sense of a why I oughta, no one gets to talk to my home country like that. It wasn't just garden variety nationalism though. Shawn Michaels, who hails from San Antonio, Texas and is a wrestling legend in his own right, had a deep-seated hatred of Bret Hart that went past the wrestling shows themselves. Bret and Shawn were competitive with each other. They were seen by the WWE, WF at the time, as the two biggest stars vying for the WWF world title. As is the case in any form of entertainment like this, where people are vying for a top prize, to quote the movie Highlander, there can be only one. So bruised egos and hurt feelings were bound to happen, and they did. I don't have enough time to go into the whole Brett and Sean saga, which culminated in November 9th, 1997, when Brett and Sean faced each other for the WWF title, which Sean won in a very controversial way, which is forever known as the Montreal Screwjob. 
You are safe to Google that phrase. Nothing weird will come up, I promise. But for my own personal wrestling history, a match that happened just a couple months prior was very significant as well. On September 20th, 1997, taking place from Birmingham, England, Shawn Michaels won the European title from hometown hero British Bulldog, who was a member of the Hart Foundation and extended family since his wife at the time was Diana Hart Smith. Bulldog was initially slated to retain the title in his home country, but on the night of the show, Shawn went up to head booker owner Vince McMahon that he should win it instead. The idea was to achieve severe hometown heat, heat being a term for being heated and getting booed, and to set up a rematch in England with British Bulldog down the road, which would in theory get a larger audience, a larger pay-per-view audience at that, as they would want to pay to see the conquering hero triumph and beat the cheating, conniving heel. The problem was that, number one, the rematch never happened, so it just looked like Sean wanted to humiliate a member of Brett's family in this country. And two, Bulldog dedicated the match to his cancer-stricken sister, Tracy. I remember as a child being so outraged and livid at this result. Shawn Michaels was my Darth Vader. My villain from the TV I wanted to see get what he deserved. Of course, the fact that all of what transpired involved real people and involved real-life situations made this even more emotional and heated to me. You don't get this sort of emotional reaction from a movie. As much as you can hate a fictional villain like a Darth Vader, you wouldn't want to spit on Darth if you saw him crossing the street, Not, not just because he would use the force on you. Since it was based in reality, the blurring of the lines made it more potent. It goes back to an old axiom from the territory days. Personal issues draw money. In the territory days, which involved territories such as Memphis or Calgary's own Stampede Wrestling, doing shows every week and attempting to draw big crowds week in and week out, you needed that burning desire to go there every week and see your hero win and get the comeuppance on the villain. As these territories book longer, months-long stories or angles, you'd often see the heels trying for a time, drawing phenomenal heat, just crowds losing their minds, the heroes just getting demolished. But the end goal usually ended with the babyface, which is a wrestling term for a good guy or hero, triumphing in the end. You needed that, as as otherwise it's just masochism or misery porn. I know with real-life sports, you can have sports teams go on decades-long droughts of never winning a major championship since the outcome is not predetermined. So in a sense, pro wrestling's have a more humane way to witness the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. The stories of the wrestlers feuding draw you in. And the result leads into amazing in-ring athleticism that also features wonderful pageantry with grand entrances and wrestling gear that wouldn't be out of place in a drag show. Speaking personally, I've never been into MMA or it's a bit too aggro or bro-y for my tastes. With pro wrestling, with some rare exceptions when real life heat crosses in, like with Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels, the wrestlers have to be on the same page and work together toward the larger goal. To use comedy terms, it's more like an improv team, where everyone has to be working together to make a funny sketch or comedy piece, as opposed to the solitary world of stand-up. One example from history that pops to mind was the feud in the 80s in Memphis between Jerry the King Lawler and actor-comedian Andy Kaufman. 
Kaufman grew up as a wrestling fan and always wanted to try it. By the late 70s, he was one of the stars of the number one sitcom on television, Taxi. Oh, I love Bob James' Angela, the theme to the Taxi from 1978's Touchdown, a great album. What am I, shilling for Bob James now? Anyway. And a respected comedian who appeared on Saturday Night Live and Late Night with David Letterman. He still wanted to scratch that wrestling itch, though, which led him into the Memphis Territory and his feud with Jerry Lawler. There's a great episode of Vice and Craves, Tales from the Territories, that gets into all of the details. But just needless to say, Andy and Jerry played up their hatred of each other. Andy playing the role of the hotshot Hollywood actor and goofing on the Southern Memphis wrestling fans, and Jerry as the hometown hero sticking up for the sport the fans love. They never broke kayfabe, kayfabe being a code that has the wrestlers on the character. And even after Andy Kaufman died in 1984 due to lung cancer, Jerry Lawler, when asked by reporters for comment, kept up the ruse and said, uh, Jerry, I, I, uh, I know it's not a pleasant subject, but I just wanted to ask because you were so uh, prominent in uh, his wrestling career. Uh, we we saw the uh, sad news about Andy Kaufman passing away, and I just wondered uh, if you had any comments to make about it. Well, you know, that that is changing the subject, and i got some more I want to say about Humongous, but really, I am not, you know, I've had calls all all week ever since uh you know ever since andy kaufman did pass away i've had calls from tv stations all across the country wanting to know my comments about you know about andy kaufman's death i'm really the wrong person to, to talk to about that you know i i didn't I, I didn't like andy kaufman andy kaufman didn't like me uh, I'm sorry that the guy's dead, but I would think that, you know, I, I always thought that when somebody dies, you talk to somebody that, that thought a lot of them. I hope that if I die, they don't interview Jimmy Hart, because, you know, I can imagine what he's going to say about it. In reality, they loved and respected each other. The ultimate sign of this was the fact that Andy Kaufman never cashed a single check Memphis Wrestling gave him for as many matches in the territory. Proof that he was only doing it for the passion and love of the sport. To get back into 1997, the year I got into pro wrestling, is now described by publications like What Culture as, quote, the greatest year in wrestling history. Yeah, it was partly due to Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels' feud, but 1997 also saw the rise of Stone Cold Steve Austin, one of the biggest household names in pro wrestling history. While yes, he didn't really explode in popularity until uh, one year later in 1998, but 1997 was the start of his rise. It's almost like the Strokes playing in New York clubs building their reputation the year before their debut album is the Zit came out and made them superstars. And here is the first ever comparison in recorded history of Stone Cold Steve Austin to the Strokes. You can only find that on Body Slam Poetry. 1997 also involved WWE's competition WCW at its hottest level as its TNT show, WCW Monday Nitro, was direct competition to WWE's flagship program, Monday Night Raw. And at that point, Nitro was in the middle of its 83-week winning streak of beating Raw in the TV ratings. 1997 was the year that set the table for 1998, the year where pro wrestling really penetrated the mainstream. With WWE returning to MTV for the first time since the mid-80s, which was the rise of Hulk Hogan, with their program Sunday Night Heat, airing during peak era MTV, during the rise of boy bands like Backstreet Boys and NSYNC, 
teen pop like Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera, and new metal like my beloved Limp Bizkit and Korn. I watched an old tape recently of an August 1999 episode of MTV's TRL, or Total Request Live, hosted by Carson Daly. And in the middle of a, of a video countdown battle between Backstreet and NSYNC, they were setting up an MTV takeover by Stone Cold Steve Austin called Stone Cold TV, directly following TRL. The wrestlers were rubbing shoulders of the biggest names in entertainment at the time, and no one batted an eye. As I mentioned, it's uh, WWF week all this week right here on MTV. It's been awesome. Uh, today's no exception. I'm in amidst the uh, fans of Stone Cold Steve Austin, uh, the champion, and uh, he will join us right after the show for uh, Stone Cold TV. And the fans are certainly what makes Stone Cold such a champion. It's incredible fans. Pro wrestling has never been as popular as it was between 1998 to 2001, which neatly dovetails into the peak of the music industry, at least in terms of units sold was also the late 90s to early 2000s. Records by the likes of Eminem and NSYNC pushing over a million copies in the first week for albums that were $20. The rise of file sharing services like Napster kind of put an end to those wild spinning days of the major label business. And bit by bit, the monoculture evaporated as everything got more nicheified, which I think is for the better. The record industry will never be as big as it was in the late 90s or 2000s, no matter how many Target-exclusive vinyl copies Taylor Swift sells for her projects. Just like pro wrestling, whether it's WWE or its top competitor nowadays, AEW, or All Elite Wrestling, will never hit 8.1 million viewers, which WWE Monday Night Raw hit on May 10th, 1999. But that doesn't mean that pro wrestling is dying. Far from it! As we reach the death of the monoculture and are more fragmented in what we watch or listen to, that leads to more passion. The over a million people watching WWE Monday Night Raw or SmackDown or AEW Dynamite today are passionate, selling out arenas across the world, with the forum continuing to evolve for the better, I think. The people who are getting into pro wrestling today whether as pro wrestlers or fans, see the same things Young Ben saw in May 1997. The spectacle, the pageantry, the personal issues, the grudge matches, the basic fundamentals of pro wrestling haven't changed since the Stampede Wrestling days in the 70s or 80s. How we experience it might be different through streaming services and posting matches on YouTube, but what births the next generation of wrestling fans is the same thing that brought myself to a 1997 and made me a lifelong fan. That same passion and love is what drives local Alberta independent professional wrestlers to get into it as a hobby and later a career. Sure, they might get hurt, and if they go at it long enough, they will probably have aches and pains for the rest of their life at minimum. But that doesn't mean they know this going. We will explore the why throughout these next eight episodes, asking local independent wrestlers why they got into pro wrestling. We will also ask fellow fans what brings them back to the sport each year. I've been following it since 1997 fairly consistently. It's a part of my life at this point. So while I described a bit of what, what drives my passion for it, I'm sure I will learn some things myself in these episodes and will cement why I love the singular sport. Oh yeah, and as a coda to the story, I did get to interview and meet Bret Hart, my childhood hero, in 2019 as a part of Mount Royal University's Beset Networking Day. Hey, I'm here with uh, Bret the Hitman Hart. This is a true honor. I, 
This is great. I, I was at the, I attended the Canadian Stampede pay-per-view in 97. I've been a fan for so long. Just, this is a true thrill for me. Yes, I am. <laughs> so how did the, the wrestling business set you up for like entrepreneurship and branding? Well, in, in a lot of ways, um, you know, I was in the, in the eye of the hurricane in the sense that WWF and Vince McMahon and all that power. Yeah of making a brand yeah. is it's such a big machine that does all yeah. that from t-shirts to pictures to the sh wrestling shows and mm -hmm. but i um ultimately you're you're the product i'd love to go back and tell seven-year-old ben that that moment happened i'm sure he would be proud of me at least after a moment of being shocked by my time travel technology and that He's talking to a future version of himself. No, seven-year-old Ben, I'm not going to explain the future to you. Beyond that, like, for example, how Billy Ray Cyrus's daughter is one of the biggest stars in pop music, and that we carry tiny computers in our pockets now. No, we still don't have flying cars like the Jetsons promised. Seven-year-old Ben, I have to wrap this episode up. I can't answer all your questions. I'm sorry. Nice to see you, though. Oh, yeah. I almost forgot. I brought up at the beginning how my team experienced wrestling for the first time. You might be wondering, well, I mean, I hope you're wondering. If not, just play along with the bit, please. What did my team think of seeing Legion Wrestling for the very first time? Well, let them tell you. What did you think of pro wrestling before going to see a show that night? What preconceptions did you have? I think I knew what everyone else knows is the sort of, like, everyone thought it was real and then knowing that it's fake, and then sort of just my question coming into that was, like, how is it faked? Because I'm sure, like, I'm certain these people are still getting hurt and still, like, doing these things. So, yeah, it was sort of a question of, like, I know that it's not real, but it's got to be a little bit real somehow. I always thought that uh, the wrestlers themselves were not athletes, but more so actors, seeing that everything was scripted. And I always wondered why the wrestlers looked... So Jack, so I thought they were on steroids. Uh, another thing too was the ring itself. Uh, I, I, I've seen people get thrown on, on, on the mat and I thought, you know what, maybe the ring itself is soft. So like, those are the preconceptions I had going into it. What surprised you in general? I feel like I was definitely surprised by like the crowd and the enthusiasm. It seems like there's bits that people do that like you pick up on the longer you go. Like a lot of, I think one thing that I finally noticed that I thought was interesting the second time was I think people shout two when they only get to two. And I was like, I could do that too if I come to get. I'm like, I'm in the know now. To that, I would say the biggest thing that surprised me was the physicality of every single match. Regardless of what match you're watching, regardless of who the opponents were um, or who was just in the ring, it was bound to be incredibly physical Lots of bodies being thrown in the ring. And that was something that, even though I, I knew or visualized something like that happening, I didn't realize uh, just how physical it would get. In fact, I would hear in some matches uh, that body slap someone who actually hit someone. So I'm not saying that there was accidents during a match, but I did hear that. Um, and I, was, I wasn't like courtside or like ringside. Uh, so to hear that from far away, I thought, man, this guys, these guys are actually getting hit. 
What did you make of the crowd? Describe the age range, people you saw, heard, etc. Um, yeah, the crowd was very interesting. It was a lot like different than I expected. I definitely expected like forty year old white men, which there are a lot of, but it seemed kind of like it was kind of like a family event for a lot of people, which I thought was cool. I like sitting there. I was just mostly thinking. I was like, I could come here with a lot of different people. I just like felt looking around, like excited to try to take someone else to a wrestling match after. I will say one thing is for sure is that it was a big crowd, and it wasn't just a crowd of people from certain age groups. We're talking like a variety of age groups that attended the match that night. Uh, it was very interesting to see kids there. In fact, I saw one kid that was probably less than 10 years old. But then there were people there who very clearly um, were more advanced in their years, uh, who might, in fact, be called seniors. And the fact that they chose to be there on a Friday night when it was a little cold or fairly cold uh, speaks volumes as to just what the appeal is to these wrestling matches. And so a lot of people, and another thing too that I noticed was the energy. Uh, the crowd sustained the energy throughout the night. Lots of cheering. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people probably lost their voice by the end of it. Uh, so it was very fun to observe and to be a part of. So yeah. Do you understand the appeal after attending? If you did see the appeal after going, how would you describe the appeal of wrestling after seeing it in particular how it interests you. I think, yeah, what really I enjoyed about it is I get to, like I get to use my favorite word to describe it. Is it's kind of camp, like it's just over the top. It's outfits. It kind of like because I love going to drag shows, and I know that you at some point will make this comparison. But it's definitely having like a persona um, that people enjoy and um, outfits. <laughs> But yeah, it's there's sort of a spectacle to it and just like a it's almost like a heightened reality cuz I don't know. I don't know how much they're actually getting hurt. I'm sure they're getting hurt a little, but just the exaggerated movements of it all. It's like just sort of the energy that comes off of that is very exciting. There's lots to unpack here, and I've kind of mentioned it uh in my previous answers. But for me, the appeal of it is in the physicality of the matches, in the energy of the crowd, um, in the commitment from the wrestlers themselves. I've said this before and I'll say it again. These guys are sacrificing their bodies day in and day out. That mat does not look soft. These guys are actually getting thrown onto the mat. Looks like with full force, I can hear it. It's almost enough to make a guy cringe in their chair because it looks like it hurt. Um, and it just takes me back to that quote from the movie Gladiator where the main character, Maximus, says, Are you not entertained? So these guys, they're putting their, their bodies online every single night. And really, I don't know if it's nice to say, but... How can someone not be entertained by that? Would you go again? I would go again. I went twice, actually, so <laughs> I have been back. <laughs> and I, I don't know, I would love to go back. I had a great time. 
would I go again? Well, here's a question for you, Ben. When are we going again? Because my answer is an absolute yes. I would love to go again. In fact, I am waiting for you to tell me when we can go back again and potentially do some more recordings um, or talk to some rustlers. Like, that was very fun. So, uh, I would love to go again and watch and enjoy and just be immersed in the experience all over again. Thanks for listening to Body Slam Poetry. This episode was written and produced by Ben Goodman. Assistant producer Sophie Chardon. Edited by Jed Mabaza. And music by Grayscreen. Stay tuned for the next episode. Episode 2, The History. Additional sources. Mercury Records. Universal Pictures. MCA Nashville. WWE. CBC Radio. 20th Century Fox. Columbia Records and MTV Networks. This initiative is made possible by the Community Radio Fund of Canada.